Up until last summer, I really didn't have much good to say about CBD extracted from hemp. I'm not a fan of CBD isolate or spiking cannabis products with it. CBD just doesn't work reliably for patients on its own. Each of the plant's cannabinoids, terpenoids, flavonoids, and lipids are vital components that humans require to achieve the healing that comes with the entourage effect. But last summer, something new occurred. It was the first season that plants were grown at a commercial scale that were legally hemp, but they had all the medical marijuana genetics. This is a monumental difference. Up until last summer, good folks were taking industrial hemp fiber plants and extracting CBD. The problem with CBD isolate, though, is that the science does not support its medical efficacy, and the only reason it exists is because of the artificial market for isolated CBD created due to federal prohibition of the medicinal whole plant. Quality whole plant medicine comes from whole medical cannabis plants, not from hemp fiber plants. While the two may share a Latin name, they are wildly different plants due to years of hybridization. The hemp plants just don't have the terpene profiles and other attributes found in medical cannabis. But CBD from hemp fiber plants is federally legal enough that it can be sold online. So people grow the fiber hemp plants, extract the CBD, and are selling it rapidly. Last summer, though, some farmers in the U.S. approached CBD plant genetics from the opposite direction, and instead of growing fiber plants, they turned off the allele that makes THC in medical cannabis plants and grew truly medical cannabis plants legally as hemp. These plants that normally would have been highly regulated and sold in cannabis stores were allowed to be grown in open fields unsecured because with the THC allele turned off, they tested below 0.3% THC, which makes them legally a hemp plant, even though these are really medical cannabis plants. The evolution of this hybrid plant moves us beyond the simple vocabulary of describing a plant as hemp or medical cannabis. There are now medical cannabis plants that are regulated as hemp without being the fiber-producing sort. While confusing for outsiders, this evolution will again remake the CBD market over the next five years. And for diehard CBD enthusiasts like me, there's finally a scalable, low-cost method of providing CBD to patients everywhere. The next major milestone will be the inclusion of cultivars that have above 0.3% THC, but we're not quite yet there federally. If you want to learn about cannabis health, business, and technique efficiently and with good cheer, I encourage you to subscribe to our newsletter. We'll send you new podcast episodes as they come out, delivered right to your inbox, along with commentary on a couple of the most important news items from the week and videos too. Don't rely on social media to let you know when a new episode is published. Sign up for the updates and make sure you don't miss an episode. Also, we're giving away very cool prizes to folks who are signed up to receive the newsletter. There's nothing else you need to do to win except receive the newsletter. This month, I'm really stoked that we're giving away several newly released Air Vape X vaporizers from airvapeusa.com. Go to shapingfire.com to sign up for the newsletter and be entered into all future newsletter prize drawings. You are listening to Shaping Fire, and I'm your host, Shango Los. My guest today is Seth Crawford. Seth is a deinstitutionalized academic with a master's in public policy and a PhD in sociology. His focus has been on the political economy of cannabis. For years now, he has been consulted by lawmakers and policy specialists for better understanding of how the cannabis economy works. He's now co-founder of Oregon CBD, a company researching, developing, and wholesaling high CBD cannabis seeds. Today, we're going to talk about the dramatic evolution occurring in CBD genetics. Hey, welcome to the show, Seth. 
Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for coming back. So, so let's start at the very beginning. You know, um, you and your brother Eric saw this opportunity uh, to produce CBD on the large scale uh, because there were so many patients that were yearning for it, and yet to do it large scale, you had to figure out a way to make it legal to grow in volume where you lived in Oregon. So, so what did you and Eric see in this opportunity that decided to push you in this? direction of producing CBD from plants that are legally hemp? We have always really been looking forward to the day of being able to grow uh, enough plants to do scientifically accurate uh, selection. You know, it's, we've, we've, we're hobby breeders for uh, a decade before we got into this full scale. Um, and there's some really neat things that you can do as a hobby breeder, uh, and people are doing this all over the world, and we, we love to see it. Um, but there are a lot of things that you just can't do with you know four plants or six plants that uh, really emerges when you start growing thousands at a time to do your selections. Um, that that was that was one of the driving the driving factors for us was just being able to breed better plants. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. When you can do a sift that's that huge, uh, you're you're gonna just gonna jump ahead of hobbyists, like you were saying, who are only gonna do their their patient max of four or fifteen or whatever it's gonna be. Um, you know, one of the things I, I, I want to really drill on in this part that's what sets you apart from a lot of the other um, hemp from CBD producers. Because I, actually, I do talk a lot of trash about hemp derived CBD on this show, but but I, the weird thing is, is I always have to make this caveat except for the stuff that comes from Oregon CBD seeds, right? Because you guys are going about this a different way than nearly everybody else in hemp. And if I understand it all correctly, you know, so many of the hemp from CBD companies, they started with the fibrous version of hemp and they are trying to breed in the medicinal qualities of, you know, full cannabinoid uh, content, um, medicinal terpenes, and, you know, in order to be able to pull the entourage effect out of a fiber plant. Um, and, you know, I have not seen a lot of success in that. However, you guys came from the other direction. You guys actually started with a legit healing, full spectrum marijuana, medical marijuana plant, and you decided to turn off the THC allele, and which as far as I'm understanding from outside of the CBD market, the CBD hemp market, that is a wholly new approach. So break that out a little bit for us, would you? Yeah, um, that that's accurate description of, of, uh, of what's going on. Um, you know, it, not only uh, entourage effect for individuals who would be consuming the the final product, um, but the other thing that that you end up missing out from a just a basic plant biology uh, perspective, if you have no terpenes in your plant, uh, you generally have more pests, you have more disease, you have more problems. Um, cannabis in in the in the long term uh, evolved many many different. Uh, different terpene combinations that allow it to thrive in its natural environment. As the hand of humans has started to uh, select for those different characteristics, we've obviously gravitated towards particular smells and particular effects uh, that go along with with those terpenes, uh, whether it's for, for THC, uh, in combination with THC or CBD, or you know, as we'll talk about pretty soon, uh, CBG and other cannabinoids. 
Um, so what we were really, really trying to do was to just recreate that, that like you said, uh, an entourage effect, but that beautiful palette that comes along with well-bred cannabis. Um, in Oregon, we're, we're lucky enough to be surrounded by uh, literally decades of, of incredible breeding that, that has been done by uh, a number of different individuals and put into the, the sort of the, the public well in terms of uh, cannabis varieties that individuals have access to. Um, and we once once we had figured out uh, how to how to essentially turn off the the THC production, uh, it allowed us to then go back to those wells and find those really interesting terpene combinations and breed them back into create new lines. Um, and that's that was basically the uh, the essence of our business uh, to begin with. So, so what can you tell us? I mean, I understand that there, uh, there's a certain part of where your genetics come from that is uh, proprietary, but I'm sure that there are people who are listening like me who would just love to hear what cultivar of medical cannabis you started with and what you did to it to turn off this THC allele. Because uh, I'm, I'm sure that that has raised flags for a lot of uh, GMO-minded people in the audience. So, so for those of us who really care, can you break that out a little bit? Yeah, there's there's really no secret. Um, we didn't start with anything that was uh, that was miraculous or or, or strange. Uh, we we started just like uh, most other, I would say, small scale breeders, um, getting uh, different varieties from uh, Europe, uh, mostly from Spain, and also uh, natively sourced here in the in the United States. Um, most of the varieties. Uh, you, you can see sort of the the history of uh, the emergence of CBD. Um, Many of the varieties were one-to-ones, so these are type 2 cannabis plants that have relatively equal parts THC and CBD. Uh, that, was, that was the starting block that we, we began with. Um, and really what it comes down to with, with all real cannabis breeding, the answer to get to your solutions generally starts with inbreeding. Uh, we just do a lot of uh, line breeding, uh, inbreeding specific plants, uh, selfing those. And when, when you self those plants, you start to lock in specific characteristics. Uh, and say with a, a one-to-one plant, if you, if you were to self that, um, you're going to end up with 25% of the resulting progeny uh, as high CBD plants. 25% of the resulting progeny will be high THC, and the other 50% are uh, roughly 50% are still type twos. So it, the, the initial the initial process was uh, not at, at the time it may have seemed fairly revolutionary, but in reality it, it, it's it's really not. And uh, there are a number of other people who who are doing that as well. Some of the the later advances that we uh, were able to achieve, uh, like the flowering uh, type three high CBD plants uh, and now uh, type four uh, CBG plants, um, that that I think is uh, that's definitely something that did set us apart. Uh, and it was it was mostly driven by agri- agricultural necessity. Um, we could create really good plants, identify them, clone them, and run those clones in fields, uh, and you have really good outcomes. But to to grow at, at a truly industrial scale to make uh, you know a, a, an affordable medicine for people that's actually effective, you really can't just grow clones. Um, and that's when we started. Uh, Really working on producing uh, viable F1 hybrid seeds using our our uh, our very inbred lines uh, and recombining those. 
was the was the goal always to create a feminized and auto flower seed or is that something that you realized was going to be necessary as you started interacting with your agricultural clients and realizing oh my god we need to make this easier you know if for us it was out of necessity uh just in terms of how we could maximize our own production um Eric and I have always seen autoflowering plants as having a, a very, uh, very interesting niche if, if, if managed properly, uh, and we've always been curious about uh, whether or not that would uh, end up leading to uh, innovations on, on in large scale agriculture. Um, <clears throat> I, th- I think that it it does, and I think what we're seeing right now uh, is not just on the CBD side, but also on uh, for THC. Uh, as long as you can get the right terpene combination in those flowers, uh, autoflowers are, are fantastic for large-scale production. Uh, if it's if it's going into an oil, uh, whether that's for co- uh, consumption or for a vape pen or you know whatever else, a myriad products are on the market. Uh, autos are are incredibly useful. Um, but it was it was mostly just trying to develop uh, initially, and this is back in 2016. It seems like forever ago right now, yeah, but. Totally. Uh, <laughs> Uh, in 2016, we were we were trying to give ourselves as many options as possible. Um, you know, if, if you're trying to grow early in the season, you know, your best bet is probably an autoflowering plant. Uh, and if you're trying to grow, you know, to maximize production, you want to have a, a plant that finishes early in the season but is still photoperiod sensitive. So we, we developed our, our early lines to do that. And if you have a long enough growing season, you can – you know, potentially have a, a third crop with autoflowers, since they tend to be a little bit more robust and uh, resistant to freezing. I think it's really interesting to consider because you know, feminized and autoflower seeds in the you know traditional heritage cannabis farmer world, um, they get a, a you know short shrift, right? Feminized and autoflowers are somehow seen as unnatural, and, and a lot of people have a lot of gripes with them. But when you when you talk to people about their particular gripes, it's because um, you know they 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 got some seeds that had been you know bred into a feminized, and so now there's like Hermes in their stock, and it seems that the reasons why people don't like feminized and autoflower has little to do with the seed itself and everything to do with how people have used them incorrectly for their purpose. Whereas you're designing these seeds specifically for multi-acre grows in an agricultural setting where you're dealing with really high volume and every plant has to be the same and harvested, uh, you know, either at the same time or in uh, known waves. And I think that's an important thing to point out is that these are feminized and autoflower seeds for a reason that has never existed before. That's exactly right. Um, And two, two, and they're almost uh, two separate issues. I mean, the, the complaints about autoflowering plants, um, especially for THC production, were legitimate. <laughs> I grew autoflowering THC plants uh, 2006, 2007, um, shortly after they, they kind of emerged on the market, and they were terrible. I mean, you could see the promise with them, but the terpene profile was awful. Uh, you know, it left you just feeling like uh, you know you'd been hit by a train and not in a good way. Um, they were they were they were not sophisticated. They did not have good palates. But the performance was something that I I just you know immediately latched onto and said, God, if you can if you could make the flavor better and increase the the overall 
resin content, this has potential. Um, it, you know, it took a it took a decade to get back to to that need <laughs> before <laughs> before we started developing uh, uh, the newer versions of them. Um, but in that interim time, in the in that ten years, uh, there was a sort of a a revolution in and good terpenes being added into those autoflowering THC plants as well. So uh, we have been, have been working to improve those. And I think we're to the point today where uh, you can end up with, with fairly high quality plants that come out of, uh, come out of the autoflowering world. Um, with the feminized, feminized seed, your point is spot on. Um, a, lot of, a lot of breeders, and I'll, you can't see me, so I'm doing air quotes at this point, but breeders who – are uh, more interested in just selling seed than uh, necessarily creating good stable lines. Um, they're not as careful with uh, with weeding out those hermaphroditic traits. Um, we're to the point with with our breeding that um, we see one male, and I, uh, it, they're not males. They're they're uh, they're definitely female plants, but they're male. Uh, they have male phenotypes, so we've we've found one in four thousand in our fields, and this is literally we're talking about millions of plants uh, that have been grown in in Oregon and elsewhere over the last two years using our seed, and it's it's a very consistent rate. We get one in four thousand that have a male phenotype. Um, we've screened them using uh, uh, PCR, uh, doing a, the the genomics test from uh, medicinal genomics, and they they're female even though they have male phenotypes the really interesting uh background on that too is that if you use one of those those phenotypic uh males to pollinate uh, other female plants you're going to end up with uh 50% that are phenotypically male and 50% that are phenotypically female so it's a it's a strange a strange mutation that's going on and, and i'm not really sure what's happening i don't think anybody knows at this point but um uh, uh, a, an interesting feature for sure, but one in four thousand versus uh, you know having hermaphroditic traits built into your plants, uh, we feel like that's a, a pretty good ratio. You know, that's for for us. That's one plant every two acres that uh, you end up having to cut down. See, that's you know that's actually epic. Will will that um, will that phenotypically male yet somehow female plant uh, be a risk to the rest of the crop? Can can there be any pollination? Oh yeah, yeah, it'll definitely pollinate, and yet we we recommend to farmers that you basically walk your field. Uh, you know, it's the the old adage of the best fertilizers of farmers' footprints is uh, definitely true in this case. Um, you go out and you find those as soon as they start flowering. Uh, they're very easy to spot. They look just like a male, um, and you we cut them down. And, you know, even though that adds labor for the farmer, it kind of warms my heart, right? Because even though we are scaling up and industrializing s several aspects of, of cannabis production, uh, at least there's still something in it that the farmer has to be in the, in the field and be around the plants and, and to give it that human touch or at least awareness. Very much so. Very much so. And it, you know, it really draws uh, attention to the risk of pollen floating around in the environment in the first place. Um, you know, that, that one male plant, it's not going to pollinate your entire crop and the chances of it, uh, you know, pollinating a neighbor are very slim. Um, but you will end up with a 25 to 30 foot section of, of your field that is just completely seeded and uh, seeds, you know, obviously scattered throughout um, wherever the wind was blowing. We had a, a fairly interesting uh, 
I say interesting now because it's been long enough uh, that I'm not completely emotionally scarred from it anymore. Uh, we, <laughs> interesting situation back in 2016. We were trying to make feminized seed, uh, doing a light deprivation run in the, the middle of the summer. And we had a, a neighboring farmer that had planted about 38 million male-female uh, hemp seeds, just broadcast seed. It was uh, the first his first year growing, and uh, it ended up uh, – you know, it's a tremendous amount of, of males that were out in this field. And the the pollen from that field uh, destroyed farms 15 miles to the north, 15 miles to the south, 15 miles to the west, uh, excuse me, to the east. Um, everybody to the west was fine because that's the way that the wind was blowing. Uh, but that, that one just small-scale experiment uh, ended up in the, the first major year of production for Oregon recreational growers, uh, you know, it, it seeded a lot of crops. Um, it destroyed, we, we lost 15 million seeds in, in, uh, in that summer alone, just due to contamination and we had to destroy them. Um, so pollen, pollen is a significant issue and it's something that we have tried to, uh, be out on the forefront in terms of providing education to farmers to make sure that they know just what the risks are and to have good communication with their neighbors, but to also question, uh, question the veracity of, of seed makers with the claims that they're making. Um, it's a, the adage about, uh, cannabis seeds being a seedy business is very, very true. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, your unfortunate neighbor, uh, seeding the whole Valley and you mentioned, you know, it, it points out the importance of communication. What did your Valley do? Cause your Valley's full of hemp farmers now, from what I understand, what did you guys do to increase your communication? So that kind of malarkey doesn't happen again. Well, um, it's, it's been an uproad, uh, uh, uproad up an uphill battle, uh, to be perfectly honest. Most farmers are, um, are responsible about it and try to communicate. Uh, the Department of Agriculture in Oregon uh, makes available the list of farm sites uh, and the acreage. So we know where all the other hemp farms are in the state, and we uh, have uh, email addresses and phone numbers and that sort of thing to be able to communicate with other farmers. Um, that That's the, the, the main thing that you have to do. Um, but at the same time, there are some, especially older traditional farmers, who uh, sort of thumb their nose and just say, look, I have a right to farm. And we've basically had to come back and say, well, we do too, and your right to farm is infringing on ours. And if you pollinate our crop um, with your your uh, your grain crop that's worth a dollar a pound, um, we're probably going to have to resort to legal action. And we don't want to do that, um, but the precedent needs to be set that uh, that people who pollinate others are responsible for that. Yeah, right on. Hey, so I, I want you to change hats for a minute before we go to our first commercial. You know, um, up to this point, we've been talking a little bit about um, specifically, you know, Oregon CBD seeds, your company. Uh, but 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 a lot of people know you as your you know academic professor role, where you testify in front of. Uh, the legislature and are just, you know, a general CBD expert, right? So I want you to put on that hat for a minute. So take off your, your CEO co-founder hat and put on your, your professor hat and, 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 and answer me this. Um, how is what you are doing there and the seeds that you are providing to, um, your, your partners in Oregon, how does that compare to what is going on in the other hemp hotspots in the country, for example, Colorado? Because, you know, as I, as I tell people about what you're doing in 
Oregon, which, you know, when I toured your facility, uh, you know, it, it's mind blowing, right? It, what's going on there. If you, if you've been taking care of patients for a long time and you think about it, you're like, Oh my God, this is like the holy grail, you know, low price, high terps, high CBD, not from fiber hemp. Oh my God. Right. But, but at the same time, there are people also excited about their breakthroughs in Colorado and other places, but, but they seem to be of a different tenor. So stepping away from the fact that you've got a company and into your academic shoes, how is what you are doing compared to what's happening elsewhere in the United States? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, you know, and it's, it, you know, if we're going to go to the professor route, uh, it kind of gets to the, uh, the point of the work that I was doing before. Um, my area of expertise was sort of, uh, social networks, uh, long-term organization of capitalist societies, you know, these, these sort of big picture, you know, 500 year or 500 year views on the development of different social systems around, uh, different technologies, uh, whether that's an agricultural technology or markets, you know, that sort of thing. And I, I bring that to where we're at today with, with cannabis, because it's, it's an absolutely, exceptional time to be alive and witnessing what's going on with this particular market in good ways and in bad ways. Um, we see the good, as you just described, uh, incredible access for, for patients uh, and people who didn't even call themselves and would never call themselves patients or just uh, people who are a little bit older who have aches and pains and they can take this, what amounts to a nutritional supplement and end up uh, having a higher quality of life. I mean, it's it's uh, destigmatized to the point where we're, it, we're just constantly being approached by people who are, are using these compounds to to just have a have a better time in in their their golden years. Uh, it's fantastic to see that the the negatives are you know consolidation and lack of diversity and all of the things that you see happen in oligopolic markets, uh, monopolistic markets. We're we're seeing that definitely emerge right now. Um, but on the exciting the exciting side in these different states, um, Colorado, Kentucky. Uh, North Carolina now is is coming online in a big way. I mean, there's we have 37 states that have industrial hemp laws passed, uh, allowing some form of production. Um, right now, Oregon, Colorado, and Kentucky are definitely out in the forefront. And the the folks who were early adopters who had some capital behind them have finally gotten their um, their processing centers up and running to a point where um, they they. They can actually handle the amount of material that is is being produced, and not only handle it, um, but you know the the demand is as more CBD has has entered the market, the demand has just increased exponentially along with that. So it's it's one of those situations where the more people know, the more they're exposed to it, the greater the demand, and it, it's worked out really well for for everybody in this uh, in this industry. Um, Awesome innovations, both on the product side, uh, on the extraction side, and the scalability, just being able to put good good marketing plans together on how to distribute this and, and get it you know, from point A to point B, having a, a more robust regulatory environment um, where we it's no longer um, – I think we're to the point now with, with hemp at the federal level that we, we know that it's not just going to go away. Uh, it's, it's only going to continue to expand. Um, and that's given given uh, a lot of the people in the industry uh, a little bit more confidence that the direction that we're going is a good one, and it, it's okay to continue to invest your time and labor in this because uh, it's it's really just going to go up. 
So as far as seed providers go, I want to drill down very specifically to this potentially difficult question. So, so what makes Oregon CBD seeds great is the uniqueness of your seeds and the fact that you came from the, the, the medical cannabis side and then brought it uh, under the umbrella of hemp by uh, creative uh, hybridization. Um, is anybody else in the country been successful doing that? I mean, do you have competitors that are doing, putting out these same kinds of seeds that they have found their way to this same solution? Or are, are you guys the only folks in the country that are, that, that are coming from the cannabis uh, medicine side and not from the fiber hemp direction? Oh no, there's, there are definitely, uh, definitely others who've been doing the same thing and who've been doing it just as long as us. Um, uh, some good some good breeders in Colorado. Uh, we have good breeders in in Oregon as well. Um, there, the the fun part is is uh, there's there's always somebody always somebody doing something unique. Uh, the the thing that really sets us apart was the creation of the auto flowering plants, and in addition to that, are the development of our early flowering uh, photo period sensitive varieties. So we're we are the only ones who are doing that at this point. Um, and for us, that's that's the major technological innovation. In addition to having terpene-rich, very very high content uh, plants, that was the major the major innovation that has really pushed a lot of the uh, farmers in Colorado and Kentucky. Uh, in in addition to uh, Oregon farmers, in our direction, are the three hotspots of of Oregon, Colorado, and Kentucky? Are you guys all allowed to buy seeds from each other, or do you have to buy seeds in state? Uh, no, we are allowed to uh, ship. Anywhere in the United States, it has a Section 7606 Farm Bill compliant uh, industrial hemp research program. So we ship to Kentucky, we ship to Colorado, we ship Vermont, Maine, North Carolina, South Carolina. Uh, we have some clients in Florida that are coming online later this year. Anywhere there's a hemp program, uh, we can ship. All right. Awesome. So, so now with this first set, I was talking about kind of where the, the, the seed technology is at the moment. I think let's wrap up this first set. Cause I'm really excited about the second set because your season was insane and it was in, it was very enjoyable for me to watch it from a state of way and, and, and watch you go crazy and it'll be a good story. <laughs> so, so stick around folks. We're going to take a short break and be right back. You are listening to shaping fire. My guest today is Seth Crawford of Oregon CBD. We humans are attracted to plants because they offer us relief and are a whole lot of fun. Sometimes though, the best parts are buried inside the plant and we need to use specialty extraction technology. When it comes to cannabis, it is extraordinarily important to extract its precious oils without changing them in the process. We want to preserve the properties of the cannabinoids, terpenes, and other constituents that all work together. Since 1994, Eden Labs has been developing extraction technology and processes to do just that. Eden Labs was founded by a cannabis-loving engineer during the early days of medical marijuana in California, and the expanded Eden team has been designing and building industry-leading solutions for cannabis extraction ever since. Eden Labs' flagship product is the newly improved high-flow CO2 extractor. As other extraction companies enter the market, it is the high-flow from Eden Labs that everyone chases and tries to compare themselves with. Not only that, but the improved automation software allows data to be collected, stored, and studied. 
Eden Labs can outfit your whole lab. Eden's Cold Finger Ethanol Extractor creates astonishing whole plant extracts working alone or in tandem with an initial stream distilling step to isolate monoterpenes before extracting the rest of the botanical constituents. Eden offers you many options, including vacuum distillation, column distilling, stirred reactor units, and accelerated solvent recovery. When you partner with Eden Labs, your lab team is enrolled into the Eden Labs training program to boost their understanding of Eden's best practices to ensure that your outputs are exactly what you require for your application, whether it be dab oil, oil for pen cartridges, or edibles. When you work with Eden, you're not just buying the tech, you're buying dedicated customer support to help you attain your business goals too. You can hear Eden's CEO, A.C. Braddock, talk about the company's values during Shaping Fire episode 19 that was all about CO2 extraction. So many of the new companies in the market just smell opportunity, slap an extractor together, and hire a marketing company. Eden Labs has been listening to feedback from extractors and consumers for about 25 years now. They care about both you and your consumer. Partner with Eden Labs to extract astonishing cannabis oils and terpenes that you'll be proud of. Go to shapingfire.com forward slash Eden to find out more. Join me at the upcoming CanMed event in Los Angeles for a gathering of the top minds in cannabis medicine. Field experts will present their latest findings and best practices in treating a variety of conditions with cannabis, including epilepsy, pain, traumatic brain injury, cancer, autism, and more. Laboratory professionals will share their revolutionary technologies in cannabinoid and terpenoid extraction, delivery methods, and quality and safety testing. CanMed 2018 is October 22nd through 24th at the Luskin Conference Center at UCLA. And while the final speakers list is still coming together, the speakers who are already announced give you plenty of reasons to get your ticket today. Prepare yourself to learn from 54 thought leader presentations focused on furthering the convergence of medical cannabis research, treatment, and product development. Speakers include the father of cannabis research, Raphael Meshulam. Michael Dorr, chief medical consultant for the Israeli Ministry of Health, will be there too. The list of esteemed speakers participating is long and includes Shaping Fire guests, cannabis neuroscientist Dr. Ethan Russo, and Kevin McKiernan of Medicinal Genomics. You can view all the speakers at canmedevents.com. This year's CanMed features a special education track on the application of blockchain technology in the cannabis market, including cannabis banking, seed-to-sale tracking, sequencing the cannabis genome, ICO financing, and more. If you are a medical care provider, be sure to arrive a day early to participate in the pre-conference CME course. Find out more about that at canmedevents.com. That's C-A-N-N-M-E-D-Events.com. 95% of attendees said CanMed 2017 met or exceeded their expectations. That's a serious vote of confidence that CanMed 2018 will be well worth your time and resources. Shaping Fire listeners can save 20% off the ticket price by purchasing before June 21st and using the discount code SHANGO. So don't delay. Visit CanMedEvents.com today to reserve your seat and find out more. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I'm your host, Shangolos, and our guest this week is Seth Crawford. He's co-founder of Oregon CBD. 
So now that we've got you all set up at how you got to this summer there, Seth, let's talk about this craziness that was this summer. Um, so people have an idea of the uh, of the magnitude we're talking here. Um, describe the number of fields that you were running, and then also the associated fields, like you know, in your area that were that were using your seeds. Uh, yeah, that's what well, we had, uh, five separate locations, um, various, various acreages, uh, our, our main research and development field <clears throat> was about 40, uh, 40,000 plants planted on around 35 acres. Um, total number of seeds that went out, uh, for the state of Oregon and to a couple other states we were looking at about 2000 acres worth last season, uh, a substantial number of Substantial number of plants. <laughs> yeah, substantial number. Uh, it's really enjoyable to walk through that much uh, terpenes being given off too, and so and so you had your fields and uh, you provided your you know seed leadership to other folks in your valley, and and we've already hit the story of the guy pollinating uh, the valley a couple years ago. But but what I'm kind of putting together is that your local area, you you guys have kind of become the epicenter of of hemp growing in Oregon. In, and there's there's some amount of partnership. You guys are kind of like a uh, uh, an industry block of intention, right? Yeah, I, I think that's an accurate description. Uh, although I'd also throw in Southern Oregon as well. Southern Oregon has, has long been a, a, a large cannabis producing area, and uh, a lot of the the recreational farmers have. They started out last year doing smaller plots, um, but are moving in this year to to bigger plots, and it's really becoming a a force unto its own as well. Um, but here here in the valley, we're uh, uh, after after the great pollination event of 2016, everybody's sort of banded together to to uh, try to ensure that new farmers were educated and that the other farmers uh, had access to not only feminized seed but good information. Um, one of the, the major concerns that we've had uh, is sort of unsavory characters making claims about seed that they sell. Uh, last season, you know, people were saying, oh, this is mostly feminized and farmers would plant it and it would be 50% female, which is not mostly feminized. Uh, and that happened on, on a regular basis. We had other seed sellers who were offering offering varieties that were actually type two plants. So equal parts CBD to THC. And it led to about 10% of the, uh, the state failing their THC compliance tests. So everybody's trying to, trying to watch out uh, not only for, for their own interests, but the, the interests of the larger industrial hemp community uh, at large. So it, it, it's turned into a, a nice sort of cooperative uh, that everybody can contribute to. You know, it, kind of, it just occurred to me that, that, you know the the compliance tests to make sure that the the amount of THC in the plants are so low. Those happen at the end of the season, and because your plants are high CBD, no THC, um, your farms don't have the same kind of hardcore security around them that THC plants do. And it's it's funny and somehow ironic that there were all of these one to one plants that were being grown in fields just out next to people's houses houses and and they were fine and safe just because no one knew they had THC in them even though those plants are like every high schooler's dream to go grab 
Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, and it's scary to be to be perfectly honest. Uh, it's sad for the farmers that ended up buying those seed. They were they were bilked by unscrupulous unscrup- uh, unscrupulous breeders. Um, but I mean, what you're saying is 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 completely true. Uh, the the problem is is that if you're over one percent, so if you if you're over 03 percent THC, you fail your compliance test. But if you're over one percent, you get turned into the local sheriffs, um, and that's that's a that's a significant problem, especially if you have. <laughs> Of, you know, ten yeah. to twenty acres of those plants. You, 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 you. The numbers that you're talking about would lead to a life sentence in prison. Uh, I think Jeff Sessions was just talking about reinstituting the death penalty for uh, for people who are growing that many uh, cannabis plants. So it's a laughing matter to a certain extent because we can say, hey, people did this, and even though it was uh, it was unscrupulous people who were misleading them the world didn't end just because some thc was grown outside without offense and, and security it, that's the neat part you know the, the downside is is it's a it's a legitimate risk and there's a lot of problems that, that can come along with that yeah the, the the thing that you could you could pull a felony for what is absolutely a technicality in seed purchase that is scary as hell yeah yeah and, and the the part that really got us is that we knew that this was going to happen um we knew where the seed source was coming from. We knew that there had been uh, male THC plants that were outdoors uh, in a neighboring field. Uh, and we knew that, that the seed crop had been contaminated. Um, but because there was no seed certification program, there's no, you know, you don't have to have any verification that the seed is actually type 3 industrial hemp. Um, it's sort of a free-for-all and it's allowed some grifters to uh to enter the marketplace they usually stick around for one year and everybody figures out uh that they don't know what they're doing and (laughs) they'll try to get some quality seed but in the meantime lives are ruined crops are lost and uh, it just it's a black eye for the entire industry yeah, right on. So it's this next part of the interview that that kept me so excited to have you back as soon as that you could find time for us again. And that is the the, the evolution of your business model over the course of this last summer. So what I'd like you to do is to to, you know, I understand that the, the, the major force of your business model was that you were going to make and sell uh, feminized autoflowering, high CBD, nearly zero THC seeds. Um, but as part of that, you need to have these uh, research and development fields and, and so that you can see how your plants are coming along and how they work in real agricultural environments. So at the end of the season, you were going to have I think you said maybe seven acres or something like that of, of plant material that was R and D, but now you've got all this flower. So, so I'm just kind of, kind of set you up to tell this story of what was your plan? What were your plans going to be for the flower at the beginning of the season? And how did that evolve over the course of the summer? Yeah. Um, well, you know, this Valley is, we had experienced the year before, um, sometimes there's pollen floating around. (laughs) So, uh, we had basically just uh, planned on planting our field, getting our research crops in, uh, running the risk of getting pollinated and having having a seeded crop. And basically, the only option that you have at that point is to turn it into oil and sell it to extractors. So that, that was essentially our plan going into the season. We just wanted to do our field trials uh, to to uh, ensure that the varieties that we are offering to farmers for this this season uh, actually perform the way that we described. So we, we like to run our field trials the year before and then then offer the seed once it's been uh, progeny tested. Um, 
we got to the end of the season and, uh, you know, we kept checking the flowers and, you know, no, there's no pollen yet. You know, another week goes by, well, there's no, there's no pollen yet. I'm not seeing any seeds forming. You know, and we finally got, uh, basically about two weeks away from, uh, uh, two weeks away from, from the initial harvest and everything looked really good. (laughs) There, you know, there were no seeds in it. Uh, and you know, at that point you're looking at, you're looking at, um, 35 acres of unseeded, just beautiful terpene rich flowers. Uh, it's as, as you got to experience, it's, it's very hard to be able to accurately describe the excitement that one who's passionate about cannabis and terpenes will have walking through a field. It is so, uh, there's so much joy in that experience. (laughs) Oh my God. Walking through and smelling all the terpenes as the sun is hitting the flowers and they're all calling out. Oh man. Uh, it's yeah, it's otherworldly, and uh, it just it puts a smile on my face to think about it. And every time we we send a, a farmer out the door with with seed, you know, it, it's the one thing that we generally leave them with is just wait until August. You know, when your field is in full bloom and it's you don't have to harvest just yet. <laughs> uh, it, it's a it's a truly magical experience. It's it's transformational. It's very cool. But we got to that point in the season, and uh, you know we had, we had had some some folks come from Switzerland who really wanted to get our flowers because uh, you know they they came and they smelled them early in the season and went wow these are these are tremendous. Um, but we you know knowing that the risk of contamination, I didn't want to put us into a, a situation where we you know we would get into a a, a contract to supply trimmed flowers or something like that that's what they wanted uh and then end up with a seeded crop and not be able to to follow through on it but once we made it to that point in the season um we realized that okay <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna trim and dry uh, as as many of these acres as we possibly can uh and send them internationally to to switzerland yeah, All right, no, so let me hold you right there, because that's a big deal. Number one, how did the people in Switzerland found find out about your little farm in Oregon? That's a great question. I'm I'm honestly not sure, but uh, <laughs> we're contacted pretty regularly. Um, the, the the Swiss European, uh, sorry, the the European and Swiss uh, hemp market for smokable flowers has has really just taken off in the last couple of years. Um, Switzerland has a one percent THC rule, which gives you a little bit of flexibility in in the oil content of the plant, um, and so they they've been producing it in uh, mostly in glass houses uh, for the last two years, trying to meet the demand and. Uh, they saw Oregon as, uh, you know, sort of a hotbed of, uh, of production and started reaching out to different farms uh, throughout the state. And most of the farms that were, were growing good material uh, were all actually growing our seed. So, the, the, as they say, the roads all seem to lead back to us. Um, and so they, they found us and, uh, and we got them some flowers. <laughs> so so one of the things that I picture in my head is that as the summer goes and as more people, you know, hear your story and they they hear the first podcast that I did with you at the beginning of the season and uh you know and, and the hemp people just start talking about what you guys are doing that you're starting to get more and more, you know, VIP contact from the US and interested people from other countries and 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 I can feel like 
this brewing, this attention and people making contact with you and yearning for your stuff. Is that how it was feeling for you as well as you're like, oh my God, we're, we're riding this bull of a product and now everybody wants it? Very much so. Very much so. And that was, that was true both on, uh, you know, our flower material, um, and on the, the seed itself, because the flower material was, I, I, I think it was excellent. Um, the, the products that are coming out of it were, were definitely things that I'm proud of. And I think everybody on our crew is, is, would say the same thing. Um, but because it was an R&D field, it, you know, we were basically doing the trials for what other farmers will be growing this season. And the, the, uh, the buzz was definitely palpable. Um, so it, it led to not only the, the demand, high demand for the flower material, for the resulting trim, and you know, all the other products that go along with that, uh, but for the seed in, as well. Um, our, <laughs> our harvest season was, uh, was long, uh, arduous, as they always are. For everybody, um, but it didn't stop. I mean, we went from we went from our our flower harvest and trimming and exporting to building out uh, new facilities uh, in three separate counties to make sure that we could we could meet the uh, the exploding seed seed demand. And, you know, I want to take a quick second here and mention, uh, you've, you've dropped out three or four times. It's been increasing as the interview has gone. So if, if you're listening and you're like, I keep on losing, you know, like a second or two, it's because where Seth lives, uh, way out, uh, rurally in Oregon, they are experiencing a thunderstorm. And so, uh, when the weather gets bad, uh, they drop packets sometimes. So don't think that it's, that it's your phone or whatever. We're just we're just occasionally dropping packets from Seth. So so thanks for staying on the line there, Seth. Even though it's the weather's getting crazy down there. So, no problem. Yeah, sorry for the drops. Yeah, well, you know. So 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 I want to finish up this great Switzerland story. So so now that you know the, the the Swiss folks found you and they contacted you and they wanted to buy your flour, but you're like, eh, I don't want to commit to the flour because we think it's going to get seeded over the summer. Now you're two weeks out from harvest and you've got all of this unseeded Sensamia high CBD flour, and you're like, oh my god, this product, this the value of this product just just shot up um, because it's got great value in other countries. So how did that deal? Uh, finish up because you know I talked to you briefly during that time and you were like oh my god we've got to we got to hire all this new staff and trimming machines and 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 we got to figure out how to package this and get it to Switzerland so so tell that part of the story because I found it pretty uh, engaging oh it was traumatic I don't even want to revisit it uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah I mean it, it just a number of different uh, growing pains in in logistical details of you know, basically learning how to operate uh, large-scale machine trimmers, uh, hiring a very large crew of people to come in to do the finished trimming with that uh, packaging. I, mean, I, I had never, I'd never shipped um, quantities that we were talking about. We ended up using uh, uh, FDA-approved uh, 55-gallon drums with plastic liners. Uh, we could fit about 30 pounds without without crushing uh, the, the the resulting product, about 30 pounds in each one of those, and you could fit four of those on a pallet and then uh, shrink wrap them and off they go. So it was just a nonstop deluge of uh, trimming, packaging, wrapping, shipping, uh, and and in 
going back into the field to then harvest more and more and more and dry and, you know, basically maximizing our drying space and uh, our throughput and uh, just haven't, there's no way that we could have done what we did without the crew that we had. Um, everybody was very devoted to, to the cause. Uh, and for a lot of people, it was sort of a mind blowing experience. You know, everybody is used to, you think industrial hemp and you, you definitely don't think of the flowers that we were pulling out of that field. So it, it's, it was, it was fun. It was definitely, uh, definitely a good experience for everybody involved. And this is one of the times that you're really glad that you're growing autoflowers too, so that you can stagger the harvest because with, with regular photosensitive flowers, everything would have been ready just about the same time. So this is this is the interesting part. We did have autoflowering plants, but the the material that we were trimming were their photoperiod sensitive varieties. But oh. they have been designed to flower very very early. And the other characteristic that we've been able to put into these plants is that you can stagger the harvest with them, um, and you get about a three week window. Uh, the first batch was finished the first week of September. The second batch was done the second week of September, and then uh, you know we were basically harvesting until the rains hit. After that, with the the later, the later uh, maturing varieties, but they they're all within the same the same basic harvest window, and that's that's one of the innovations that we've been able to uh, we've been successful in uh, breeding into the lines that we've developed. So we're all familiar with seeing the the kinds of machines that are used to harvest uh, fibrous hemp. Um, what kind of you know mechanizations can you use for harvesting? You know, when you want to preserve the flowers, is this all done by hand, and the only mechanized part is the trimmer? That is correct. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. and and that's what we tell clients is that there's. <laughs> There are a number of different options for your finished product. At the end of the season, you know, you can you can flash dry it and the terpenes will all vaporize and it's it's basically only useful for isolate. There there is a market for that. It's although it's a, a lower value. Um then the the next best option is something like a, a low temperature hop kiln that's operating anywhere between eighty to ninety degrees uh, and just moving a, a tremendous amount of air uh, just getting that air movement to to dry those products retain a lot of the heavier terpenes you lose your monoterpenes um, but you still end up with a, a nice synergistic uh, potential medical product that would be turned into oil um, the the highest value is if you you treat it just like a high-grade THC plant you hang dry it slowly cure it uh, and then you know we went with the uh, the mechanical route on on uh, on trimming just because uh, the cost of hand trimming would have been prohibitive and <laughs> not physically possible, to be perfectly honest, with the, the quantity that we were dealing with. And, and also probably not necessary, honestly. You know, hand trimming um, is certainly something that changes the bag appeal. But the at, at this point, the audience that you were serving were um, cigarette smokers in, in Switzerland, which is a, certainly a different crew than west coast cannabis connoisseurs exactly exactly yeah it was it was I, i've never been a big fan of, of machine trim uh but it, it did a decent job so so um I, I gotta ask how did how did you get all these pallets and and if you can tell me how many pallets of these four drums were there and how how did you get them to switzerland <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I don't even remember how many there were. That's a blur. But there were a lot that left our facility. Like like over a uh, hundred, though, right? 
not not that many. Not but, that many. All right. I'm, I'm, yeah. I have no way to translate how 37 acres into pallets, right? Well, maybe. Yeah, yeah, and and different products as well. So um, with the with the pallets, uh, we would basically just we had a, a shipping company that would arrive and take the pallets directly to the the Portland airport, and they would they would fly out to Zurich uh, with a direct flight. Um, the the company that was purchasing it from us would take possession at the Portland terminal, uh, so it was no longer ours. They were in legal possession of it, uh, so off it went um the the, that's that's one way of doing it we also have uh these very large bags are used for uh grass grass seed other other seed crops grains um called super sacks and those can hold about anywhere between 250 to 300 pounds of trim material all at one time and and they're basically just a a pallet's worth of material Um, that's kind of the industry standard in terms of uh of of shipping large quantities of, of material to processors uh, domestically. Um, but that's, that's also now going international as well. So this last question before we go to break, um, uh, I, I hope that you don't deem it unfair, but uh, I'm going to set it up properly, but it's, it could be a hard question. And I know you to be a very patient centric dude. Both you and your brother have got big hearts. You, you work with patients, you give advice to people for CBD. You like them to have strong endocannabinoid systems and you are very invested in your local cannabis scene. So you're, you're the kind of people that we want to see succeed. And when I've visited the farm, I had all these visions of, of, you know, low priced cannabis getting into the hands of patients. And I was excited for that. And yet somehow I was also excited for you that you got this amazing uh, buyer in Switzerland. And that was cool. But all this CBD was now leaving the United States. And uh, you had to have been torn about that. And I'd love to hear about your decision. Yeah, very, very much so. Um, you know, the the largest influencer of that was the fact that you know we have this this Oregon market um, that we could have sold directly into had it not been prohibited by state law. Uh, at the time, you could not sell uh, cannabinoids or flower product into the uh, adult use market if it was derived from industrial hemp. And that was just the strange quirk uh, in in the uh, Department of Justice in the state of Oregon in their interpretation of the existing law. Um, it took us a whole year to get that change. Uh, we just, our, uh, our lobbying group for industrial hemp farmers just uh, got that passed in the last legislative session in March. Uh, so we, we hope to be able to to sell products, not just CBD, but also CBG and, and other novel cannabinoids as, we, as we're able to uh, isolate them uh, into the Oregon market first. Excellent, excellent. But yeah, it's oh, go ahead. very bittersweet. Very yeah, bittersweet totally. It's both sides of that, to, to, to see all the potential and then realize that it wasn't actually going to make it into local patients. Yeah, bittersweet. Well said. All right, let's go ahead and take our second short break. You are listening to Shaping Fire. My guest this week is Seth Crawford of Oregon CBD. Using pesticides when growing cannabis has been common for a long time. Nowadays, though, we know better. We know that most pesticides formulated for food crops have never been tested for use with cannabis. They've been tested to be eaten in tiny doses. They have not been tested to be inhaled and especially not concentrated into a cannabis oil. Chemical residues from pesticides are not healthy for anyone, but they are especially dangerous for patients. For commercial cannabis growers, this has become very impactful. 
cannabis enthusiasts and patients have gotten educated enough that they avoid growers who used pesticides. Not only that, but states across the country have begun making pesticide testing mandatory on all licensed cannabis crops. The time has come to find a better way to fight garden pests than covering your cannabis in chemicals. And there is a better way. Let some good bugs fight your bad bugs. Beneficial insects and predatory mites have come a long way since we were buying ladybugs online and putting them in the grow room and just hoping for the best. Natural enemies biocontrol can help you solve pest issues without using chemicals. Natural Enemies founder Shane Young learned best practices from working in the ornamental plant industry and has fine-tuned those strategies specifically for large cannabis crops. Shane works with commercial cannabis clients across the country to ensure that they keep their crops safe and pest-free without the use of chemicals. Natural Enemies has proven solutions for spider mites, aphids, thrips, russet mites, broad mites, shore flies, Whitefly, and others too. You can rely on natural enemies for expertise and excellent service. For more information, go to shapingfire.com forward slash natural enemies or simply click on their banner in this week's newsletter. If you own a cannabis company, you know that finding good business partners, vendors, and allies is an essential part of your role. And building your business in a new industry like cannabis doesn't always make that easy. Canacon is coming to Boston and Detroit this summer, and the halls will be filled with every kind of ally you need for a cannabis company. Technology, horticulture, packaging, marketing, legal human resources, and media, everything you need for your business will be there. And your customers will be there, too. Because Canacon is a premier cannabis business and networking event with nationally recognized speakers and the opportunity to have serious conversations with your business peers and investors. Reserving yourself a booth at Canacon can unlock a lot of doors for you. Not only do you get to network with all the people who pass your booth, but it is not uncommon for Canacon vendors to do a million dollars in business during the event. Canacon's Seattle event in February sold out well in advance, so reserve your booths now for Detroit, June 1st and 2nd, and Boston, July 27th and 28th. Attendee tickets are still available for both events. Whether you reserve a booth or attend just for a day, do not miss the opportunity to become a serious player in your market. Visit Canacon.org for tickets, booth reservations, and more information. That's Canacon.org. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I'm your host, Shango Lose, and our guest this week is Seth Crawford, co-founder of Oregon CBD. So in this last section, we're going to talk a little bit about um, legality and a lot about uh, the future of, of uh, CBD-derived hemp. Um, but first of all, I want to hit on the, the Reggie Gaudino interview that we had last week, all about uh, uh, intellectual property and cultivars, because um, I know that it excited you and engaged you in a lot of very important ways. And so I want to give you the floor so that you can kind of speak to the topic last week of, of protecting these important cultivars that you are developing. Yeah, it was an excellent interview. I'd really appreciate you uh, just making the time and, and Reggie for making the time to have that conversation. I think it's an incredibly important moment in time for the entire cannabis industry. <clears throat> Having moved from you know a, a system where each individual breeder was doing their own thing and, and generally in small uh, small ways, but others doing it in larger ways. Uh, 
having having a new legal environment uh, in place has, I think, changed the the calculations for a lot of people. Um, <clears throat> one of the things that we have done is basically what what Reggie was advocating for, and that is to preemptively uh, file patents to protect the uh, the breeding technology, the breeding approach uh, that we use to create a lot of our varieties. Um, at the end of the day, whether or not the U.S. Patent Office will will grant that is, you know, obviously something that we're gonna have, we're gonna do our best to to make that happen. The way that we end up using it, however, is you know a, a lot of people are concerned about uh, individuals or corporations uh, holding these patents and then excluding wide swaths of of uh, certain types of plants or chemotypes or terpene profiles from the general public. Um, that's something that we're very concerned with as well. It's obviously not something that we would be doing, uh, but you know it it raises this this uh, this this really complicated issue for people who are investing a significant amount of time and energy and, and money uh, into the development of unique cultivars uh, or chemotypes or even just uh, potential breeding strategies like like we're doing. Um, there, there needs to be some sort of way to stop those bigger companies. Uh, you know, the, the one that's always raised is Monsanto and I soon to be called Monsanto Bayer or Bayer Monsanto yeah, or whatever. Totally. But, yeah. you know, two and a half billion dollars in research every single year is a substantial amount. Um, and that's not something that we can compete with. So I, it's I think a lot of uh, the folks that are sort of out in front on this are um, – are preemptively trying to protect the work that they're doing. And uh, there are others who are trying to make sure that all of the previous work uh, is, is accounted for. It's out in the public domain. Um, interesting, interesting times to, to say the least, but it's, it's, it's something that I think that a, a lot, as Reggie highlighted, I think cultivators and breeders uh, would be very wise to look into the potential for, for doing stuff like that. Yeah, and you know, you, you know, competing with their two point six billion dollar R and D budget is only the half of it, right? Because their legal budget is insane as well. And uh, you know, they may be able to develop the same things as uh, smaller uh, uh, cultivators are are working on with that kind of R and D budget, but also trying to defend your, uh, you know, chemovars or cultivars or techniques against somebody like Bayer Monsanto is that that's its own problem that doesn't even take place in the field that happens in the courtroom and in briefs and is just as ugly. Uh, let, let's talk for a second about one of your mo most valuable strains. I mean, you've got, your whole line is, is, is unique for their own reasons, but, but I know that you are excited as well as a lot of patients I know are excited about your CBG strain. So wh why don't you talk a little bit about that and, and your hopes of protecting that so that you can share it? Yeah, it's first of all, CBG is phenomenal. Um, it's incredible in, in terms of its uh, pain relief, uh, muscle spasms, spasticity. Uh, as a topical, it's great for eczema and psoriasis. Um, it's it's one of those compounds that you know once you've tried it, it, it it's it's kind of mind bending to to say the least that it's uh it's just been tucked away for so long inside of the cannabis genome and is now just uh, just popping up. Um, so we're we're really excited to be able to uh, to bring that to to the table for farmers in 2019. Um, the 
at this point, it's not just one variety. I think we're at, uh, I think there's between seven and nine individual lines that we're working on that have very different approaches and, and different uh, practical applications, whether it's for the production of uh, you know, field production with harvests using combines or terpene-rich varieties that uh, will be hand harvested in the same way that, that uh, a lot of the, the finest flowers are still grown for, for THC production. Um, a number of different options, different flavors, uh, and different characteristics. We have some that are 100 to 1 CBG to THC. We have other varieties that we've now developed that are over 300 to 1 uh, CBG to THC, which means that you can do a, an oil extraction, a basic rough oil extraction, and still be below uh, the 0.3% THC limitation at the federal level. Um, definitely some game-changing things that are that are coming out and will be available to farmers for, for 2019. And, you know, you know CBG, since, since people don't spend a lot of time using it on its own, it doesn't have as much of a rep as other parts of the plant. And, and certainly, um, when you come across CBG, it's not going to be in a whole plant, right? Most of the time, it's, it's because it's extracted out. Um, but but the proof was in the pudding when we visited your farm and and, and um, we we tried a dab of your CBG rich strain and and we left your sampling booth. Um, you know I I thought I you know at first I didn't think I felt anything and then I real, realized I was in a really good mood and kind of felt like I was walking on clouds. But my associate I brought with me, he's got lifelong pain. And on that particular day, his leg was all flared up and, and he was uncomfortable in my car and it was a drag. And we got back out to my car and we're driving away and he like nudges me. He's like, dude, I don't hurt and my leg's fine. And I'm all like, I'm like, oh, that's nice. He's like, no, you don't understand. And so that's when we first started talking about how, you know, we talk about CBD being 20 to one all the time and how nice it is to be able to get cannabidiol into folks with, with, you know, a low amount, just trace amounts of THC, especially kids who don't want to be lethargic at school, um, you know, through their parents, of course. Um, but, but with the CBG, you know, you know, 100 to 1 CBG, and that is an, you know, a, a powerful pain reliever. This opens up a, a, like a whole new field of cannabis clinical medicine. Not that they're going to be giving them Very dabs, so. though. <laughs> uh, I mean, to be perfectly blunt, uh, I think that America would be a better place. I think every every place in the world would be better off if every adult had a CBG pen, a vape pen in their pocket. Um, like you described, it's, it's not psychoactive, but it's also, I, I describe it as, as being a, a profound experience in the sense that it provides a significant amount of mental clarity. Uh, if you are anxious or if you've had too much caffeine or, you know, you're, you're just, you're, you're tense. It is, a, a, a non-psychoactive relaxer. I mean, it just, it calms people down in addition to having all of those different pain relieving properties. Um, it's, I don't want to, you know, you don't never want to be, uh, uh, making proclamations that are a little bit of a reach, but I do think that for a lot of people who suffer from chronic pain, this is one of those amazing substances that will help them 
not take opiates. And uh, the the more the more cannabinoids that we have at our disposal to be able to deal with things like opiates, uh, the better off we're all going to be. But I, we are really looking forward to seeing thousands of acres of this in production in, in the coming years. And so if you've got seed for these strains coming out next year, I take it that you are following Reggie Godino's strategy and defensively patenting it in advance. Yeah, we are. Um, it, it, the reason that we're not releasing it to farmers, though, is the for the same reason that the varieties that you saw in the field last year um, are the seed the test crop for uh, what farmers are growing this season. Uh, we do field trials uh, to make sure that the, we're doing accurate progeny testing so that we can make the best seed possible for farmers. Um, I don't know of any other companies that do that uh, outside of you know general agriculture and uh, uh, seed production for other crops. We've basically just tried to mirror that. Um, you know, we've, we've taken our success and built a genomics lab. We're doing in-house testing. We do these these large-scale field trials to make sure that the product that goes out is going to perform exactly the way that we say it is because we, A, know it really well, and B, are telling the truth based on uh, on legitimate uh, field applications of, of the product. Um, so that's, that's the goal this season. This summer is uh, we're growing out all of these different uh, new creations and finding out which ones work and, and which ones don't from a farming perspective. Right on. Yeah, because a lot of these seeds, there's a big difference between growing 25 plants in your yard versus growing 25 acres. Uh, agri- agriculture is a whole different animal. And and to that point, um, you know, you need a lot of seeds to be able to grow that many plants. And from what I saw when, when you had your announcements of seed sales this year, um, you had way more people interested than you had seeds. People were showing up to your seed sale days and essentially, you know, buying out your whole run on that day. And then, and then, you know, I've, I've been watching your posts about your new, uh, your seed manufacturing structures. So can you just give me a little bit idea of, of how much you've chosen to scale up and, and if you think that you're going to meet demand this year? Um, I think we'll be able to meet – well, that's probably a stretch. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're going to be able to meet the demand for this season. But the the crazy part is is that people come out of the woodwork between now and May 1st, and uh, and large orders are, are definitely happening. Um, we went from being able to produce you know, basically about 5 million seeds per year to being able to produce 50 million per year. Uh, and this summer we're going to be scaling out. We have uh, uh, 500 lights between uh, our three main production facilities. Um, we're scaling that up to 2,000 lights so that we can produce uh, every year. We'll be able to produce about 100 million seeds. So we're doing everything that we can to make sure that this is a viable large-scale agricultural crop for as many farmers as we can possibly get into into the farming. It's weird too, because right, that that's just producing those seeds is like running an entirely separate company. I mean, you're selling seeds, you've got all these seeds in your R and D fields, you're 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 machine trimming it and sending it to Switzerland, and oh yeah, we've got these you know four or five locations with two hundred lights producing like this this 
epic volume of seeds, that is in and of itself sounds like a hassle. Uh, you do it all indoors, right? So as you were complaining about your neighbor that pollinated the whole valley, you in instead are doing it in very uh, tightly controlled areas with, you know, vacuums that pull in inside and everything, right? So that, so that um, it's a, it's a very sealed up uh, uh, manufacturing process. Exactly, exactly. Uh, you know, the nice part about what we're doing is, you know, growing inside uh, is the only way to really ensure that uh, that you're going to have a, a quality product that's not contaminated. And, you know, we, we've talked about this before, but, you know, one one male, one legitimate male, one pollen grain from a male plant would destroy a crop and we would have to, to basically get rid of, get rid of all of those seeds. And we, we do that. Uh, quality is the, of the utmost concern for us. Um, if, if a farmer ends up with one plant in their entire field that is sampled by the department of agriculture that has, uh, if it's a type two plant, if it's a, a one-to-one, -one, um, that one plant would make them fail their compliance test. So we, we do everything in our power to, uh, make the production side sealed, clean, uh, and, and not, not worrying about pollen contamination. We also flower in the, in the winter. That's when we're making all of our seeds so that we can miss the, the large potential plumes of outdoor pollen just in case it's going on during the, the regular harvest season. Um, but even after all of that, we still grow out you know, these test batches and do our, our PCR screen to make sure that there are no Y chromosomes in our gene pool. So when, when farmers are getting seed from us, they can, they can reasonably assume that uh, they're going to perform as as we've claimed, and we're trying to back that up with the, with basically twenty first twenty first century science being brought to bear on this ancient, awesome agricultural crop that we've all been growing for generations. Woohoo! So, what do you what do you see as being you know looking forward to this summer? What do you see as being uh, some of the the interesting hot points? Like you know, last last summer you were super shocked in a good way because you you didn't get pollinated with somebody else's seeds, and therefore instead of having uh, CBD rich flour for extraction, you actually had CBD flour that was sensimia without seeds. And so it was much more valuable than you had planned. Um, but it, it, it created a kink in your business model. Uh, what do you see as being uh, potential changes that could happen either for your business model or for the, um, the industry w in general uh, this coming summer? Uh, <laughs> to be determined, you really, I'm, I've given up on forecasting. Uh, <laughs> it just, it changes so dramatically and so radically every season. I know that for, for us and for our company, um, we've gone through tremendous growth in the last, in the last year. Uh, and we are trying to devote ourselves fully to the process of, uh, creating seed and, and doing good field trials. And I, I, I don't think that we're going to be doing uh, trim flower again this season. It was an awesome one off last year and it worked out. Um, but for us to be able to focus on, on the breeding and not just CBG, but, but all of the other, uh, minor cannabinoids that, that are uh, basically coming online is, is better testing is emerging. Um, that's, that's really where our focus is and being able to, uh, create varieties that will will succeed and thrive in other areas. We're doing a lot of custom breeding projects right now um, for, say, tropical areas, uh, different 
totally different environments that we're not accustomed to and we don't have uh, we don't necessarily have access to in the summer for us to, to grow here so we've had to build out um, climate controlled uh, environments to replicate those those uh, uh, you know low uh, very high levels of humidity uh, very warm uh, you know basically trying <laughs> trying to do uh, controlled experiments to develop varieties that will work in other other areas as well Right on. Well, that's all really inspiring. And, and, and all of us from, from patients to product manufacturers to entrepreneurs to retailers, we are all looking for your success so that you can uh, bring a wider array of canvas products to the market. So keep on the good fight, brother. Oh, thank you so much. Right on. Well, thank you to, for being on the show, Seth, and, and send our best to your brother, Eric, too, who, even though he wasn't with us today, is a big part of why uh, Oregon CB Seeds is a success. And, uh, and we look forward to talking to you again uh, at the end of the season to find out um, one, uh, what unexpected realities came across your plate this year. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate being here. You can reach Seth Crawford via his website at OregonCBDSeeds.com. And you know, even if you don't necessarily want to reach out to talk to Seth, I recommend you go to the website just to enjoy the reading of... Um, of their catalog of seeds. If you're a nerd for this kind of thing, just reading the product descriptions will cause you a lot of joy. And also it's fun to follow their Instagram at Oregon CBD. You can find more episodes of the Shaping Fire podcast and subscribe to the show at shapingfire.com and on Apple iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. If you enjoyed the show, we'd really appreciate it if you'd leave a positive review of the podcast wherever you download. Your review will help others find the show so they can enjoy it too. On the Shaping Fire website, you can also subscribe to the weekly newsletter for insights into the latest cannabis news and product reviews. On the Shaping Fire website, you will also find transcripts of today's podcast as well. For information on me and where I will be speaking, you can check out shangolos.com. Does your company want to reach our national audience of cannabis enthusiasts? Email hotspot at shapingfire.com to find out how. Thanks for listening to Shaping Fire. I've been your host, Shango Los.